Then let's forget what we should have done earlier and continue with what we should do now. Howdy, everyone. I'm Phil. And I'm Kyle. And we are the Unsociablists. And this week, we're going to be talking to you about books. Books. We're nerds. Literature is extremely important in leftist culture, so we figure, uh, you know, time to get on that uh, discussion topic. As we mentioned in our first episode of this new season, we're trying to get some more people with a bit better, uh, mm, some more expertise in these areas. Yeah, we're not necessarily, while we think books are very important, we don't have the, uh, the credentials to back it up. So thankfully, we brought on someone who does. We have with us the head of the podcast conglomerate, Deus Ex Media, the co-founder of Wildling Press, a writer, editor, and all-around just awesome books person, Christina Kahn. Hello. I love the word conglomerate. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) We're happy to have you here. All right. And so to start off, we're going to be, I guess, kind of touching on what themes best kind of can we pull out of books generally? And more specifically for you, I would say out of kind of putting the, what kind of books are we kind of like putting more effort into getting into people's hands these days, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, definitely important that we uh, touch on, you know, prioritizing, making sure that our newest generations are brought up with some of the right ideals, which is definitely not happening by most of the proper, uh, most books that are being published. Uh, pushed forward by uh, major publishers, but also, uh, you know, that we educate uh, the older generations with uh, some maybe uh, more dense material that uh, more actively gets into the disparities in our society. Yeah, for sure. I mean, reading is like the best, easiest way to spread information. I feel like, well, maybe that's just because maybe I'm biased. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's a pretty viable way to view things. It's fair to be biased. It definitely has longevity in a way that social media and like television and other stuff like that don't don't have yet anyway. Yeah, as long as we don't have a library of Alexandria situation, you're not going to find anything more permanent. Oh, don't remind me about the library (laughs) of Alexandria. I bet they had socialism and communism all figured out and then just, oh, burned to the ground. (laughs) What can you do? Whoopsie daisy. (laughs) Now, I think it's fair to say that when people think of leftist books, the average person jumps to uh, theory books, which is like everyone says, oh, read theory, bro. And we try to, I mean, we encourage that if you're up for it, but we try to make it that like, if you don't read theory, you can still be a good leftist. But we still should go ahead and touch on theory a little bit since we're talking about leftist books. Yeah, I mean, you got the big main, uh, yeah, the 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 marquee titles like Das Kapital, uh, The State and Revolution, On Authority. Um, on Authority's a bit lighter than a lot of the other ones. But, you know, these are the kind of main, I would say, probably 19th, early 20th century texts that people tend to, to mention. Now, do you have any... Uh history with uh, reading theory books, Christina? Or do you decide to stick more to fiction? Yeah, I actually don't have any history with theory books. Um, I'm a big fiction hoe. Like, I, I read a ton of fiction, and I think that for the for someone who's not as into, like, nonfiction, that you can glean a lot of similar, similar ideals from fiction if you're looking for them. Absolutely. Yeah, and plus, like, like we said, you know, reading theory which i thankfully i think uh has kind of the kind of re- reactive um just telling somebody to read a book that explains all of your ideas without having to really make them your own 
thankfully, I think that's kind of that's stopped being as big of an issue, um, at least online spaces that I'm still in. Uh, But when you take these things through the lens of, say, you're an author who has read State and Revolution or something, and then you get to create a new world after that, you have to reimagine these concepts in fiction. And that can be at least as helpful to somebody who's reading your fiction book as it was for you to read the actual, you know, the the capital or state and rev or whatever. Yeah, so I mean, it allows uh, fiction authors to basically be a go-between for the theory ideas and the, the layman. Yeah. Which is very convenient. Yeah, abs- totally. Uh, like, all fiction is trying to say something. Some fiction is trying to say a lot of things, you know? Yeah, I mean, and uh, there's that line between... Uh, treading uh being concise enough to have your ideals actually represented well and just having a clusterfuck of too many things in your book yeah totally and then also like there's the matter of like trying to make it feel organic and earned in the world you've built rather than having it Mm -hmm. kind of your ideology is kind of like hammer fisted into your fiction yeah that makes sense yeah sorry go ahead kyle no i was gonna say that makes a lot more sense you have to actually kind of build the environment where these ideas make sense well, I mean, let's kind of, since we've already touched on theory a little bit, and we don't really want to harp on that too much because we bring it up basically every episode <laughs> at least once. Um, let's go ahead and jump into uh, how leftist fiction t- tends to present itself and how it's been around in our society. Like my first examples of thinking about leftist fiction are some of the old uh, sci-fi books of the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, the Isaac Asimov's. Some people would include George, or- include George Orwell, but fuck that guy. Um, you know, uh, and a lot of it tends to be sci-fi because you, you have to think about the future usually when you're thinking, I mean, you can do it with fantasy, but sci-fi I think fits better in a, a quote unquote real world future. I, I think those, uh, those examples tend to spring out to me as the ones that, uh, uh, started the idea of leftist writing in, uh, fiction. Yeah, totally. Because in science fiction, you can do whatever you want. I mean, going back to it, you have to make it make sense, but you can make anything work in your science fiction world and your fantasy world. Like sci-fi and fantasy in a lot of ways are the same. And so like, you know, for example, when people are like, put, you can't put black people in middle earth. There's no black people in um, the original trilogy. It's like, Hey bro, this is actually a fantasy land. So we can actually put whatever we want, including like dragons. (laughs) So like, why not people of color? And that's why I think that, as authors and readers were able to hold sci-fi and fantasy authors to a higher standard because they're, they don't have to reflect anything that is actually happening in our world. Yeah. You have a totally blank slate. And just because, you know, a movie that was shot in 1999 didn't hire any people of color to actually play the elves or the orcs or the, well, I think that the only people of color they did hire played the orcs. orcs yeah, right. makeup yeah, it's okay to put a black person in green face, right? Right. It's not racist. <laughs> But they, uh, yeah, you have that kind of total, total open space to paint a world, a picture of a world that you can, that doesn't exist, and that you have kind of a, a way to make a, a better world, or at least a world that could be better. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I only had yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. Let's. Uh, I think we can probably uh, go on with this for a little bit, talking about. Um, the idea of these fiction purists who don't realize that the reason their fiction was largely white was because culture was incredibly racist. Same with like 
uh, all the people who are like, oh, why are there so many queer characters nowadays? You realize only like, oh, 10% of the population is queer. It's like, yeah, but 99% of his fiction written through history is purely straight. So we're just trying to catch up a little bit here. And <laughs> there's a higher percentage of queer authors than there are queer people in the population, I would yeah. guess. <laughs> The Adventures of Zorzadanagla, episode 23, to read A Chance to Dream. Friend Zorzan, would you humor me? I hoped to find examples of Earth literature that do not support the current capitalist monoculture, but rather lean towards a communal utopian lifestyle. Sure, uh, no problem, Agla. Want me to start heading to Earth? No, I would rather not attempt to parse their flawed book sorting system. While I respect Dewey's decibels, I think we should head to the Galactic Central Library. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite places. I've charted a course for knowledge. All right, we have arrived. Let us track down a research pod. That won't be necessary. I recently started here to help categorize the collective knowledge and writing of the universe, so I'm pretty sure I can help you find what you're looking for. Sorry, you surprised me. I I suppose that makes sense, but I don't know why a Zilkian like yourself is in a clerical role. Most of your species use their abilities to further research in some area. I'd argue that I'm doing just that. There are plenty of ways we can still broaden our knowledge of how best to catalog our collective information. Yes, that makes sense! Ha ha ha! Yeah, I think I get where you're coming from. And being able to separate into a hive mind swarm with each component having perfect recall does make you an ideal librarian. Anyway, nice to meet you. I'm Zorzan, and this is my friend. Hi, I'm Oglob. You seem very qualified and competent. Right. I'm Twelia. Nice to meet you. Anyway, what can I help you two find today? We were hoping to track down some examples of Earth literature that break the pattern of upholding the fascist and greed-oriented ideologies their planet tends to operate on. I can definitely help you with that. I would recommend starting with their science fiction works. Most of them have dramatically incorrect views on alien life, but they generally support the idea that their planet is currently being run poorly. Here, I've programmed this transport pod to head for the right section. Just hit the button on the side if you need any more assistance when you're there. Thank you. You've been most helpful. Agua, mind telling me what that was about? Uh, I am terribly sorry, friend Zorzan. I do not know what came over me. I felt an overwhelming urge to do something incredibly stupid as a signifier of my admiration for her. Aww, you've got a crush. Well, put a lid on it. I'm sure that even you could tell how uncomfortable that was. I need you to take it down about 20 notches. Yes, I will maintain my composure better. After all, we came here for the pursuit of knowledge. Now, let's see. Ah, yes, the works of Douglas Adams are acclaimed as exemplary satire of the problems ingrained in Earth society. I've actually read those Hitchhiker's Guide books. They're entertaining, and get a surprising amount right about how some of the less coordinated species develop their bureaucracy. But they offer, ultimately, no practical solution. In fact, the ending is actually kind of fun because- no spoilers! I might want to read them later! Perhaps I could offer a recommendation? I appreciate that offer, but you have to stop sneaking up on me. No, it's quite alright. I do not mind you sneaking at all. Sorry, I forgot that other species don't have perfect spatial awareness. Anyway, if you want something with a viable path to utopia, I would recommend this book. Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. Hmm. The summary does indeed seem like exactly what we're looking for. 
We appreciate the help, but I think we can take it from here. Uh, well, my friend Meads is we would be very grateful if you continue to offer us recommendations, so long as you are not busy with other tasks. I'm only doing a couple hundred thousand other things, so I've got time. Let's see. Ah, yes. Autonomous by Annalie Newitz. Another, another excellent choice. This one is seeing a surge of relevance in light of a moderately recent plague the Earthlings had. Ah, uh, yes. We're all too aware of that. Yes, sad stuff, but so is much of their history. I do hope you don't mind me lingering. I so rarely get to interact with others who enjoy works of fiction. Uh, no, we do not mind at all. Please recommend as many books as you like. Great. We're just getting started here, and we haven't even touched humanity's fantasy or historical fiction. I have a feeling this expedition is going to be a lot longer than I bargained for. Tune in next week for more Adventures of Zors on an Oglob. We tend to focus on the capitalist side of leftism here, but I do think that from the uh, social issues factor, the amount of hate that there are for books that have anything that's not straight white men as all as like all the characters is really infuriating. Yeah, I mean, science fiction does explore a lot of really interesting social concepts. I, I'm my one of my favorite science fiction novels of all time is, uh, oh my god. Frankenstein. My brain was like Voldemort. That's oh, yeah. not right. Frankenstein. Um, Mary Shelley. Yeah. And yep, Mary Shelley, like the original goth girl. We love her. And like that book <laughs> we stand. is like just at its basest concept. It's like, what if the monster is the good guy and the doctor is the bad guy? And mm -hmm. that it sort of sets up the readers to explore like so much bigger concepts. Like what if the system is the bad guy? Like what if the people in power are the bad guys and the people that they frame as monsters are the good guys? Hey, was so Frankenstein's monster, uh, potentially trans. Like where they go built only out of male corpses. I, who's to say, I have no idea. Like I would think <laughs> maybe just because Dr. Frankenstein would never mm, dream yeah. Of making like a <laughs> trans Frankenstein. That's fair, but I think that we, we should try to reappropriate Frankenstein kind of like people did the Baba Duke. Yes, I love it, especially since they made that movie, uh, Frank, The Bride of Frankenstein, where it's like, let's do a girl one, and it's like, uh, we don't. This isn't something yeah, we that's need. <laughs> not the way you represent women in culture and media. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, there are those are some great uh, classic examples of like. Uh, not uh, not conforming to the straight white male ideology in books, but um, unfortunately, in terms of the capitalist stuff, most of the books that actually have like a message uh, from the left coming from the left tend to be pretty dystopian. And it brings me to a quote that uh, I've always liked, which is, "It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism." <laughs> Frederick Jameson said that. That makes me think of. Um... I don't I don't know this I don't know if this skit has happened already but the um the last book in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series um mm -hmm. which I think is the restaurant at the end of the world where they're just yep. watching the universe explode but they're still at a restaurant they're still paying yeah. for lunch mm -hmm. <laughs> It's like Spot not on. even an open bar there at the end of the universe Yeah <laughs> Yeah it's uh it is sad that uh it's damn near impossible to actually picture a utopia that makes any kind of like literary sense 
because of the way our society has slated itself. Yeah, totally. And I'm trying to, I'm kind of like racking my brain right now for like uh, dystopian novels that I've read that aren't based in capitalism and all of them are like conceptually not strong. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm th- I mean? We have this perfectly good dystopia right here. Why not use it for ideas? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm thinking about like the first book I think of when I hear dystopia is uh, Divergent, um, which was like a book that I was really obsessed with when it came out. And it's like, what if we have five groups of people doing five different industries? <laughs> and it's yeah. like, I think there's more industries than that. <laughs> I'm tempted to bring up your uh, your podcast and how there's only four jobs in a certain world, but oh. we're going to breeze right by that. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like the Hunger Games where it's like... Well, we've expanded this to 12. It has... It is just, yeah, it's, yeah, we got 12 industries, three of which I think are like luxury industries. Yeah. It's like you got fish, you got coal, you got lumber, you got technology, you got fashion. Those are the five, and I, there's, I guess, seven others that I don't remember because they don't matter. Oh, and then there's the fun 13th nuclear weaponry. Oh, yeah. Uh, industry Uh, i'm surprised that's not two of the industries people love their bombs nowadays i know i know but yeah it just is all i mean especially hunger games is feel when you're reading it it actually truly feels so post-apocalyptic american like it's like Mm -hmm. yeah i think that the world our society would implode and we would still end up somehow more shackled to capitalism than ever before yeah that's always been a concern of mine about our real world is that uh the capitalists will win yeah and like i'm thinking about how Peta had to like burn his loaf of bread just to justify not selling it so that he could give yeah. it to someone who was like literally starving i don't know how familiar you, you guys are with the hunger games but it's just oh it's capitalists <laughs> yeah, I, I mean I, i've heard plenty about it i've had plenty spoiled so i'm not that worried about it but uh i've never watched the movies or read the books at this point there's no real need yeah I mean, there's <laughs> tons of other good good uh dystopian narratives out there yeah but yeah i'm trying to i'm racking my brain for like any of these books that have a happy communist ending and uh none are springing to mind well they're dystopian like it's it never Mm. the whole premise of the dystopian novel is that like the main characters is somehow better than the society they live in and they're the ones who can see that it's not right you know and like they have to like rise above and like figure it out and like topple the system and like and but even but they don't always even do that like the hunger games ends with katniss being like yeah fuck those kids let's do another hunger games with the capital kids and it's like oh cool so we're doing the exact same thing we're just literally not even changing what's happening that's great cool three book arc (laughs) like (laughs) And so it really is about like, like, not like other girlism, like this one, only this one person can see that like this isn't right. Well, I mean, in the uh, Zorathon and Oglob in this episode, I did some research for a couple books that did have a more positive ending. But I, I, based on the summaries I read, I'll need to read both of the books that are in that skit. So, but I having not read them yet. Yeah, it's, it is frustrating that most dystopianism is just like the ending is okay. Well, now other people are running the dystopia. Yeah. Um, since you made me think of Ursula, uh, was that Ursula K. Le Guin that we were talking about? Yeah, I, I mentioned her in the skit. Yeah. Um, I am kind of remembering, I think that one of the very few dystopian novels I've read that ends interestingly, like ends hopefully, is um, Native Tongue by Suzette 
Oh my God. Hold on. I'm not going to remember this. She's got a three name. Suzette. It's Suzette Hayden Elgin. Um, and it's about this society where women are enslaved, basically. Classic. Love it. You love to see it. <laughs> and um, But they have this, they are trained as linguists and translators. So these women have this incredible power that like none of the men feel like they need to learn because it's like, well, you have slave women for that. And because the women have this leg up, they're able to develop this language, this like subtle language that the men don't understand. And so they're able to like speak with each other in a way that is like completely um, like completely alien to these men. And because because of that, they're able to organize and they're able to kind of break out of that system. Well, that That's actually a really cool. Inter- yeah. It's really cool. Have I mentioned I love language? <laughs> well, I mean, you'd be in the wrong profession if you did. <laughs> it's like a science fiction book about linguistics. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there are. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of examples of leftist fiction out there that uh, have a, a a, a better a transition to a better system by the end of it and uh not just science fiction fantasy any other you know um any basically any genre you could hope for and i'm sure with a quick google you could find a book that was right for you that uh encompassed leftist ideals but really you know anyone reading anything uh that's not actively hateful is probably a good thing yeah i i'm pretty sure there's scientific evidence to back that if the people who read more are literally more empathetic and it's i think that that grows the more diversely you read and that's mm-hmm. something that's like so cool about sci-fi fantasy dystopian fiction is that like especially in the past 20 30 years it's been diversifying like wildfire like the authors and the stories that are being told in those genres are really i think diversifying more quickly than other genres are because there's so much freedom in the world and like your landscape that you're able to play with and so i love reading like i've read a million like game of thrones lord of the rings where the like fantasy worlds based in western mythos but these days it's becoming like easier and easier to find here in america science fiction and fantasy that's based in uh like asian mythos african mythos like places that it's it builds you you don't realize that like when you're reading the hobbit it's like this is so steeped in western culture you don't realize it if you are from that culture but once you start reading more broadly you're like there are so many cool tropes and like settings and stuff that is as deeply ingrained in other cultures as like the hobbit uh, as like the dragon guarding the mountain and the white wizard and like all those tropes feel to us like there's just a lot to explore and that's why i really feel like people who focus so much on the classics are really losing out on a lot of diversity. Yeah. Um, definitely. It's uh, neat that we're broadening horizons now at books. And I'm glad to see that, uh, that that's uh, coming more to the forefront in recent literature. some laughs and get along and always worship Jeff. We'll all pretend America is really moving left. We'll all be happy trapped in hell, the family bereft. Because when we spell family, we spell it with a capital F. Capital F is filled from a live studio audience. (laughs) 
All right, kids. I hope your parents all paid for the library voucher for the day. Anyone who doesn't have one, please see me so we can put it on a payment plan at only $45.99 APY. Anyway, you have the next hour to look for books for your history papers. Remember, your voucher only covers three books, so if you want to check out more, it will cost $5 a day. Mr. Tills, do we have to use books from the school library to do our work? Yes, Robbie. You have to stick to school-approved books. That means no using any of those socialist sources you like so much. Anyone who sources a book without a school barcode will instantly get an F on the paper and have to pay the standard failing fine. <sighs> fine, I'll write some garbage that I don't agree with. Can't afford to get grounded again. Literally, my dad charges me every time I do. <laughs> now, let's see if I can find something at least somewhat historically accurate. Hey, what? hey, kid over here. What? Who, who are you? I'm a school librarian. What? I, I thought our school stopped paying for a librarian once they got the automated sorting system. It's true. I'm not uh, on the books anymore. Still, they'll never stop me from providing knowledge to children in need. Well, that seems a little crazy. Uh, why did you want to speak with me? I heard you getting lectured about being a socialist, so I knew I could trust you. You see the cracks in the system. With the right books, you can deprogram the mind-controlled masses that are your classmates. I'd say you're a bit nuts, but I agree with you, so I guess I'm crazy too. <laughs> anyway, uh, what did you have in mind? We can only use books in this school library system. I've got a loophole for that. I salvaged some books with actual history in them during the purge, and I've managed to keep them in the system. Follow me. Hmm. Is it worth following a lady who's clearly mentally unwell to a place where I'm out of sight from everyone just to maybe get some decent books? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, wow, a trap door under the carpet. Consider me floored. This is my secret stash. All the books you need will be here. Please just use them to spread knowledge. Yeah, I will. You know, it's a shame most librarians were forced to go into hiding. You seem to be really, well, not cool, but good, at least. Anyway, these should be all I need to write my report. Let me close this back up. Thanks. Hey, where'd she go? There you are, Robbie. I see you are sticking to the books with school barcodes on them, so that's a relief, at least. We'll see if you still think that when I give my presentation next week. It'll be a... Textbook surprise attack. <laughs> of course, let's. Uh, it's not just about the literature itself, but the places where this literature is gathered. Uh, and I think that uh, this is a good transition into jumping, jumping onto uh, our most significant socialist institution here in the states. The idea of the library. The libraries are so good and special. I don't know about you guys. I when I was a kid, I spent oh man, my so my mom, huge library head, huge library head. She's still on the board of the library back home. It's it's a volunteer kind of uh, selected position, but um, I spent probably I don't know ten eight eh, probably like eight hours a week in the library when I was really young. You know, I would go there, I would get all these little books, I would hang out in the carpeted room where they had also like some Legos and stuff. It it was a, a meeting place, you know, not just for 
uh, adults who wanted to find something to read, but like for kids and for families and for a whole community who wanted to be around a easy, accessible source of knowledge and source of, like you said, you know, the, 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 the broader you, the, the breadth of your reading makes you more empathetic and the, the breadth of people that come into a library makes it more of a community. And so I, I just, I don't know about you guys, but libraries obviously very, very special to me. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was full Matilda status. <laughs> My mom would take me like once a week to the library. This is when I was like six, seven, eight, nine, you know, elementary school. Um, and I would check out like 15 books and just read them in a week, which is wild to me now as an adult. I'm like, oh my God, right? I, this cannot be the same brain. Yeah. It's crazy how many books you can read when you're a kid. Yeah. And so that's how I got exposed to like so much classic science fiction and fantasy is just by grabbing whatever was on the shelf. Because especially if you're looking at like the children's fantasy section, you're going to get a lot of classics. And a lot of those classics do still hold up. The ones written for children, I think, like touch less on like political stuff and instead just like focus more on being like a good person and like, mm -hmm. you know, being a friend and like doing, you know, I'd say basic empathy is still an important leftist message yeah. that gets lost in translation far too often. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what a lot of that children's fantasy focuses on. But I've spent so much time in libraries in my life. Like I lived in my college library studying and just like walking around and being amazed and taking advantage of all of the amenities before I had to graduate. And um, now I live in Richmond, Virginia, and we're so lucky to have a really freaking amazing thriving library system and it's just so important it's like such an important place like we have so many like low-income people here who like might not have internet or computers at home and they're able to just like come into the library and use it and and like nobody's like what are you doing <laughs> like what are you doing here like they're there to help people are able to go in and like do job applications they do job fairs all the time like they are really help out here helping our communities in such a profound way that I think they only get away with because it's like, ah, librarians, you know, they're, they're, they're yeah. cushy. They read books. They got these wild ideas yeah. about helping people. <laughs> they're crazy. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy that the uh, idea of the library is so foreign to the rest of how we run uh, capitalist culture. Yeah. Like yeah. what if we took like the library principle and applied it to healthcare? <laughs> That's what well, we're see, saying. Actually, yeah. We're going to talk about that uh, <laughs> at the end of this little section. I'm sure I don't know if you've heard the term "library socialism," but uh, I've be, never heard that. Yeah, it's uh, it's something we'll be. Uh, we'll, once we wrap up this discussion on regular ass libraries, okay. we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll get into talking about the idea of how we could make society function very well in a, in a utopia without changing that much. Yeah. The uh, the thing that really kills me about because libraries like. Like every public good in this country seem to be are under attack. Um, you know, in my town, in Philly, where I'm living, library closes at 5 p.m., uh, opens at 9 a.m. It's got eight hours a day, and those don't count for the weekends. You can't go into a library on the weekends in this town. It's a town of a million and a half people. That sucks. And about, yeah, the, the system only has probably four or five of the couple of dozen libraries that are open on the weekend. Well, I mean, a lot of that transition happened during COVID, you know, when uh, for a while, the only, all you could do was go like go to a library website and request some books and then pick them up through a slot in the door. Mm. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So it's like, I guess it, it's it's a calcification of that limiting of public service 
which of course doesn't apply to other services that maybe the city or the county or whoever thinks are more important to fund because a lot of this you know they cut they they cut a lot of librarians off of the payroll they aren't hiring people back they have essentially you know roped off enclosed another piece of the commons that used to help a lot of people and instead you know put more money into you know the cops coffers or whatever you're never going to see him reducing the hours at a gun section of walmart oh my god yeah (laughs) they see and that's so frustrating because here in richmond we are building up our library system like we just opened a new location and i think that they've they've also recently expanded their hours at my local library like the one that's closest to me and it just is like really fucked up that the people where you live don't won't have the, as the, as many resources as the people where I live just because of how the localities are choosing to distribute their funds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, most cities have a a capitalist agenda in uh, in in mind for how they want to run their city, and unfortunately, uh, informed masses tend to go actively against capitalist ideals. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad. I mean, for the record, I'm very glad to hear Richmond is doing so well with libraries. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty really sweet. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. I love it here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I didn't have. I haven't had much exposure to libraries recently. I generally do most of my reading online anymore. But uh, back when I was a kid, I definitely thought the days when we could just hang out in the library for a couple hours in school were the best days of school. Yeah, oh, easy. You really can be there without anyone wondering why. You know, especially for like you said, for kids who. I, when I was a kid, it was like nobody wanted us at their house. We, mm-hmm. If we were like out in public, peep, cops, security guards would be like, what are you doing? But it's like in the library, it's like, obviously, we're chilling and reading and stuff. You know, nobody yeah. nobody wonders what you're doing when you're in the library. You can just sort of exist. Yeah. I mean, we need to bring back all those. Uh, I don't know if they still have them in some places, but I know a lot of places don't do them anymore. They're like the book it and t- stuff like that, where it's like, hey, kids, if you read, you get free nice shit. Oh, like, oh, my yeah. gosh. I mean, maybe not junk food, because junk food isn't necessarily the best prize to be promoting, <laughs> but you know something yeah for sure for sure another thing about libraries is they they like every year they become more and more accessible to people so we we've been talking a lot about like going into a library but it's worth noting how many ways that people can use library even if they are mobility limited or mm-hmm. you know don't have a car or something um through my library card i have a couple different apps where I can rent ebooks and audiobooks through my library and um, like using my library card. And so like I could make good use of my library without ever leaving my house. And I think that's another really important step towards broaden can ever broadening the horizons of libraries is making it and its resources accessible to as many people as possible. And that even includes one of the apps that I have that I have my library card in. I literally get like TV and movies through it. So if I wasn't able to afford cable or Netflix or whatever, like I could watch in uh, there's enough free content through these apps for people to get a nice taste of media, you know, even if they're not able to afford it or make it happen on their own. Yeah, I was going to say something sim- similar. I uh, what with the limited hours of Philadelphia's library system, I got you know their app, and I have on it a bunch of ebooks. I'm listening to uh, Ray Bradbury's Illustrated Man right now. Oh, that's so funny because I'm audiobook. just about to start Fahrenheit 451. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a good one. I've read it like six times. Gonna read yeah. it again. It's so good. <laughs> it was a pleasure to burn. Talk about censorship. Oh so my god. Good. 
but yeah, I mean, you get that, and I. Uh, that's wild that you can watch movies and things with it too. But I, I know that I can use my uh, library card to get into like JSTOR. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Get into actually like scholarly articles and things. So that's another fantastic use of it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the St. Louis Library has that media thing too. But I don't think we I don't think we have access to archives with uh, my library card. I could be wrong, but yeah, I haven't explored that. I need to poke around. Different city to city. I'm sure. Another way that libraries are out here helping people um, just doing doing the socialist thing um, like libraries are also a really safe haven for authors, uh, like especially indie authors, authors just getting started are authors from marginalized voices who perhaps don't have as many resources. Libraries are a wonderful place for those authors to be able to share their book and their message without the pressure of having to sell copies, having to work with a business. Libraries just really open their doors to readers and writers who are trying to connect with each other. And they they help people make those connections. They have wonderful events like festivals that are open to like local authors. An author can host a book reading, a book signing, uh, you know, they can do all sorts of things. And then if, if an author does an event in a library, the library will then stock their book. So the local community can check it out. So it really helps sort of from my perspective, working in publishing, it helps authors a lot too to have a really strong library system near them. It's definitely uh, it's definitely pretty awesome how libraries like at their core are just about expanding the knowledge and understanding of people and their access to that information. Yeah, which kind of uh, that's I mean, libraries, as we know, them are an information trade medium, but trade is the wrong word, an information medium. But um, the idea of library socialism encompasses all the ideals of the modern library into every aspect of our day to day lives, which is why it's if we already have the institutions in place, which is why it makes sense. So like. The go-to example is a tent. Okay, so I got real quick library socialism. This was invented, uh, credit to this podcast, Seriously Wrong. Uh, Aaron and Sean, the two hosts of that podcast, came up with this concept, and uh, it definitely resonated with uh, the the far left in general since it got uh, brought up. But yeah, yeah, tent is the go-to base example. Rather than make a bunch of shitty tents that everyone has to go out and buy and then they break and then we have a bunch more garbage in the world. Right, you gotta store it in some garage mm-hmm. or under your bed or someplace. Yeah, we make far fewer really good quality tents. Mm-hmm. You're only camping for like maybe two weeks out of the year for the average person and that's that's being generous. Mm-hmm. So, rather, so rather than have to own a tent, you could rent a good quality tent from a library and then return it when you're done. Yeah. And since it's a good quality, it will keep working for, you know, tons of people. It'll create Use far less resources, create far less waste, and be better quality. And you can apply this to basically any product or good that is developed in capitalism and instead socialize it by making less of it and, you know, using a rental system. Yeah. there Obviously, there's not like a big system for, for that kind of ideal, you know, the library socialism. Um, but I, for example, like uh, smaller communities are able to make that happen, which is something I love. And it's becoming more and more normalized, I think, at least from my perspective, living in a pretty liberal city. But my neighborhood has like a free exchange group um, where like you could totally be like, hey, I'm going camping this weekend. I don't want to buy a tent. Does anyone have a two person tent I can borrow? And usually someone will be like, yeah, totally. I have a two person tent you can borrow. And then it's it's 
a similar system. It obviously definitely doesn't exist everywhere, but I do love that communities in certain places are trying to make that happen in small ways for themselves. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I'm glad that is happening. But yeah, the reason library social movement would be so easy to implement is if we just made it a not a uh, thing that you had to necessarily set up in your own community, but just a thing that our government provided as like, hey, we have these hubs of rentable things. Yeah, you know. It would it would make it would be very easy to transition to, and uh, it would cause very little confusion in the day to day lives of the average person. Yeah, I'm thinking about how you can rent a car, and like that's mm-hmm. one of the most capitalist things ever. Is that like it's one of the few things you can rent is like your single individual unit of transportation. Yeah, yeah cars. <laughs> cars need to go the way of the dinosaur at some point. Please, we just have really good public transit, and then like little scooter stations at every public transit entrance and exit. Right. Yeah, totally. I know I've bragged a lot about my wonderful liberal city that I live in, but God, our public transit is fucking horrible here. It's so bad. It can't be worse than St. Louis. I, well, maybe it can be, but... I've never experienced St. Louis. Richmond, luckily, is quite small, so it's like, okay, the bus doesn't go there, I'll walk, whatever. But God, it just... It needs to, the public transit situation needs to be so much better in this country. Absolutely, that's not what we're talking about today. That's my own personal little rant. No, it's, no it is. It, though, it's because... We tangent all the time in this. We don't, we <laughs> yeah. don't make our topics like hard and fat. Oh my god, we're not talking about books for two seconds. Stop the podcast. Cancel everything. <laughs> Stop the podcast. <laughs> so, like Philly's got like I I really like the, the transit here is pretty good. It can always be better. You know this ta- this country doesn't. I don't think there's a single city in this in this country that has like perfect or really like exceptional transit it's not we like, don't have high-speed rail anyway yeah yep. you don't have that kind of stuff um you you can hardly even get commuter rail at any decent price even here in the northeast corridor where it should be relatively inexpensive yeah uh, to get up to new york sometimes if i wanted to get an amtrak coach it's 150 bucks yeah um just one way that's absurd it's wild i have a friend who lives in boston who comes down to visit all the time and they're always like, okay, like, do I pay a lot for a train ticket that's going to take a whole day or do I pay a slightly a lot more for a plane ticket that will take half a day? It's like, they, oh, yeah. they're both horrible options. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's silly because obviously all of that infrastructure used to exist and yet... Again, you rent your one little piece or buy your one little piece of individualized transport in order to, you know, at the time, I guess it was to keep people buying things, keep people consuming, keep this kind of push on uh, what uh, production, overproduction in this sense, uh, so that they can keep padding their bottom dollar when it would be cool because like, you know, you got those Carvana towers, those big old Mm -hmm. car vending machines. Yep. Imagine you just go up to that and be like, well, um, so me, I live in Philadelphia, but I'm from St. Louis. My family still all lives out in the Midwest. Uh, We don't have high speed rail. Maybe instead of having all these cars littering our streets, all of these, you know, it, it's terrifying for me to just walk like my dog at night because yeah. somebody's going to run through one of these stoplights or stop signs and I'm going to get squished. Oh, drivers are so bad, especially ever since COVID wrapped up. No one can drive anymore. Oh, God, it's gotten worse. Maybe it's just also that I'm an old curmudgeon, <laughs> but uh, you, you got the car vending machine technology. Just have if you need to get somewhere that isn't easily accessible in my town you take the bus the buses are clean the buses are really great i love all the bus drivers i've ever had and 
you don't really need a car in most of this town. You just go to the car vending machine when you want to drive across the country to see your family twice a year or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah, that would be awesome. The capacity would be great. Yeah. Yeah. And you said earlier, I think you said cars littering the streets. And I'm like, damn, they really are like litter out there. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about how they they maybe like five years ago, they added bike lanes in downtown Richmond, which is awesome. Love that conceptually. But the way that they had to put the parallel parking all through downtown, like the bike lane is inside the parallel parking. So it's like wildly confusing and dangerous i feel because like no one knows where the car goes no one knows where the bike goes it's like because yeah because you were like yeah let's add a bike lane but you like continue to prioritize cars now it just is very confusing for all parties to navigate downtown mm. yep same here in st louis just i've seen so many people uh nearly hit a cyclist just because they don't know how to carefully follow the rules of the road yeah i really want to get a scooter like an electric scooter because i almost never travel far my husband has a car and we have a truck so among between the two of us we have three cars which is just bananas and i've always i don't drive a ton i work from home i've always wanted an electric scooter but my husband is like that is so dangerous like people are not looking for you bikers aren't looking for you pedestrians aren't looking for you cars are not looking for you like literally no one is looking for a little scooter and it is, it is scary to think about trying to get around without the car protecting you mm-hmm. yep. especially now with how cars are getting taller and you know the blind spots are getting even bigger you know there are people driving around in this town Right here outside my door, I got a guy parked a giant Dodge Ram. He couldn't see me mm-hmm. if I was, you know, I got my my wife and I, uh, we got a an electric scooter and I would go out with her when I was on the bike and she was on the scooter. And I was like, this is terrifying. You know, it's yeah. like <laughs> I, people in Philly generally, I, I'll say I've lived in Philly. I've lived in St. Louis. I've lived in Phoenix, Arizona. Of all the towns I've lived in Philly, at least the people seem to look a little closer if they're going to run you over <laughs> but it, it's not great by any standard yeah yeah it would definitely make more sense if there was like 150 of the cars on the road and you had to go rent them yeah like from a library mm-hmm. ah, bring it oh back. my god car library <laughs> right we have the technology yeah those carvana things yeah i remember when i was younger watching uh i robot that will smith movie and they have yes. like a car a car like he parked his car and it just like the garage just like took it away <laughs> and i was like that's so cool that is from the future and then like five years later we have like the carvana towers and it's like oh that's actually very real yeah it's most of this most of the sci-fi technology that like makes that would make lives easier is very doable it's just not profitable yep Yep. I've always said that like people either view the world in dollar signs or smiley faces. And unfortunately, mm. I think the people in charge are almost totally dollar sign people. Oh, yeah. Well, that's because the people who view the world in smiley faces more often than not aren't inherently violent or evil. Yeah. And so we're not. And this goes this goes back to our previous episode where Kyle and I were talking about how there will need to be a revolution that's not so smiley face yeah. oriented. Yeah. But, you know, uh, that's not that's not here. So <laughs> If the Hrooskies had won, packed in literature. If your pathetic poverty-poisoned bee brain is capable, envision a world where the terrible force that was the USSR had somehow cheated their way to victory in the Cold War. We would be living in a communist dystopia where freedom and democracy were a thing of the past. 
one of those freedoms we would certainly be without is the ability to read whatever we wish. While we all know books are stupid, it is still important to see the kind of harm that would be caused by a world run by capitalist-hating Antifa types. Let us cast our smooth-brained imagination toward that repulsive world right now. So I was uh, trying to get a copy of Mein Camp for them research purposes the other day. I had to sign a waiver first, saying I disagreed with the morals and messages it contained. <sighs> Apparently they're going to keep it on file just in case I do anything fascist. Well, how messed up is that? I mean, it sucks that there are extra hoops to jump through with some books, but it's not that big of a deal. I mean, you do disagree with fascism, right? That's not the point. I don't see most of the people reading those of them garbage fiction books being put on watch lists. Well, there's kind of a big difference between the moral values presented by Ursula K. Le Guin and the ones presented by Hitler. Oh, of course you cite a woman author. You want to protect women so much? How come you need to read a fucking pamphlet about the dangers of transphobia before you can get them Harry Potter books? They were written by a woman, too. Yeah, a woman who's a massive transphobe and generally a piece of shit. If you're going to read a piece of literature written by someone with hateful ideologies, it's really not the worst thing to understand the context behind the author before you consume their works. Anyway, I can't help but notice you still haven't answered me about that not being a fascist thing. Eh, fine, whatever. Let's just say for argument's sake that hating trans people is wrong. I don't like how you worded that. What about the nonfiction stuff? Das Capital is basically the same thing as Mein Kampf, but since it's about the precious communist values the world loves so much, you can just go get a copy. <sighs> That's because it doesn't have any messaging about hating or marginalizing anybody. It's not that tough of a concept to grasp. Look, I really need to hear you say I don't support fascism if I'm going to keep talking to you. All right, fine. You caught me. I think Hitler had some pretty good ideas. Attention, citizen. Your comments are in violation of the agreement you signed, and you have been sentenced to one month of rehabilitation. Please detour to the nearest re-education facility, or you will be escorted. You see? The system makes it illegal to hate certain people for their place of birth. That's the real crime. Honestly, please just shut the fuck up. Yikes! That's exactly the kind of dystopia tankies are trying to create. How horrible it would be if innocent opinions were marginalized by society. Lucky for us, we live in the bastion of choice that is the good old U.S. of A. Let's see how a similar scene might play out in our perfect system. So I went out and bought me a copy of Mein Kampf today. Only cost like 10 bucks. You know, that Hitler honestly had some great ideas. That's so fucked up to say. Surely you know Hitler was one of the most evil people to ever exist. Look, we don't need some Antifa bullshit telling us we, we can't read. You know who else wrote some great books? The Confederates. That's why I got that flag on my truck. Against my better judgment, I'm going to engage in this conversation. You both know that it's wrong to hate people for who they are, right? Ah, uh, but I bet you read all them books that make the hateful people the bad guys, right? Well, that's hating them for who they are. Checkmate, Lib. It's okay to hate people for being hateful. That's not discrimination. Doing evil shit is a choice. Nah, I just think you don't like how you have to keep canceling people so you can't enjoy reading anything no more. There are plenty of decent authors who don't spew hate. 
I don't need that live bullshit from you. You just don't want to admit that us Trump voters outsmarted you on books. Ha! No comeback? She's walking away. Means we won in the marketplace or ideas. She just don't want to admit that she messed up as soon as she started going against the school history books. Thank goodness they were all written in 1952. I don't need all that woke stuff at then. Ah, yes. That's the kind of freedom of speech I can get behind. Nobody should be lambasted publicly over simple things like racism in their writing. Thank goodness we're free to enjoy whatever books we want, with no propaganda work whatsoever. God bless America. It's, yeah, li- uh, if we could just library libraryatize everything, that would definitely make for a pretty fast-track to Utopia, but first we need to get those, those assholes out of power. But unfortunately, while those assholes still are in power, they're doing everything they can to keep the masses from being informed or having ideals that differentiate from the, uh, the mainstream that they desire, their Christian, white, homogenized culture. Mm-hmm. And that has led to massive attacks on... Uh, libraries and literature in general. Yep, especially in the last, I guess, like what, since you'd say, I really, I mean, I it feels like it's hit a fever pitch in the last like three three years-ish, but the, the idea that you're banning books, I know this has never been like rare. I went to a Catholic school when I was in high school and, you know, we had these parents groups whose kids had graduated from the high school 30 years ago, still monitoring basically going through our lists of books that people were allowed to read in in my high school i always thought it was just a crazy catholic thing but it it feels like it's gotten even more prolific in the last few years yeah i think maybe you know since yeah you hate to even remember it but since trump was elected and especially since the social Mm. justice uprisings of 2020 i think that the right is a lot more uh what's the right word just like defensive that's a good word Uh, defensive is good yeah yeah like they're just they're they're like oh you think there's something to complain about well no there isn't because you can't find any books about it anymore yeah i mean it's Trump getting elected was basically a damn wall breaking. It's not like these people weren't here beforehand, but as soon as they saw that the man who was ostensibly in charge of the the our country, I mean, obviously the pre- we don't think the president has that much power, but ostensibly, as soon as they saw that he, that guy could be a racist, bigoted asshole who spouted the first shit that came out of the top of his head without thinking twice, they're like, "Oh, cool, we're just allowed to exist like that now." Yeah, and there's no putting that genie back in the bottle, unfortunately, which is why things have been getting so much massively worse so rapidly lately. Yeah, they truly have found all of the audacity. And they're just like clinging to it. Mm-hmm. It's like you could be a little more ashamed of yourselves if you wanted to. Because <laughs> there were always movements for uh, banning books in certain li- uh, in certain schools and certain districts and stuff like that. But now we're starting to see statewide stuff. Yeah, which is so alarming. It's truly so alarming. And like, I think that it, you know, the culture that exists in these states that are bu- banning books, like banning those books will only like further that those ideologies into the next generation. If they're not getting exposed to the stuff that makes people not want to ban books in the first place. Does, did that make sense? Right. Oh yeah, yeah no, you're like absolutely the- right. It's about, it's about keeping that indoctrination alive. Yeah. Keeping, keeping that white male fragility is, uh, as unbroken as possible. <sighs> yeah. I mean, like we saw this, what was it? Two, oh, was it two years ago now when the, um, 
they pulled the book Mouse off of the uh, shelves in a Florida in Florida, and it's it, it's <laughs> they say of course because it's uh, because of sexual content, pornographic content, which is naked mice. Um, I mean, that's always been a thing in our like culture. Like, you never... Even... Have you ever seen a mouse not naked in real life? <laughs> like, we're, we're not Stuart Littling every time we see a mouse. A mouse in, like, jeans and a sweater vest. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 the, the reason that they take this thing off is not because the mouse is naked, but because the, you know, the actual... It's showing the pain that Jews, in particular, went through during the Holocaust. And it's... You know, they they wrap it up with this idea of sexual propriety and, you know, we're sexualizing children or we're, uh, you know, showing pornographic images or pornographic material to uh, a young and vulnerable population when it is just that 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 acts as a smokescreen for them to say, well, anything that is showing actually what happened to the Jews who were stripped naked and, you know, forced into the gas chambers, that's pornographic. Anything that shows like uh, a queer couple kissing, that's pornographic. It, this, this is all just, it's all just a smokescreen to cover what is a, another way of them prolonging, like you said, this, <laughs> this kind of, uh, ostrich headedness, you know, the, these people putting their head in the ground and screaming as loud as they can that the world isn't the, the, the people around them actually don't exist. Yeah, I was just about to say that it's like playing peekaboo with a baby, where it's like, if I can't see it, it's not real. And it's like, I think that's wrong, actually. <laughs> Object permanence has never made its way into these folks. <laughs> and it, it is funny how quote unquote pornographic content is always the first thing to uh i was gonna say western culture but it really is a, a distinctly american thing to be like oh my god a tit is the worst thing you could possibly ever show or read but you can show all the you can have decapitations galore you can have you know mass executions that's all well and good De well, death murder gore that's that's kid stuff yeah, just to just to contradict you a little bit there because it isn't just american the uh, first books that were burned, or yeah, the first books that were burned in uh, Germany during the uh, rise of the Reich were books that specifically were about uh, lesbians and uh, treatments for trans uh, affirming care. Like that's these fair. Were things I was thinking they... more like in the modern age. Now you can oh, see well, yeah. naked people in, on in advertisements over there. You know, yeah, they are freer with their bodies over there. <laughs> Much now, yeah. <laughs> Those Germans. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think that, you know, it, it goes without saying, but I think it's important to say that these, banning these kinds of books, like you were saying, like, uh, the burning of books about lesbianism and trans people, like, that is, that's like a... a a hate crime like it's an act of violence mm -hmm. against those marginalized communities because one of the most important things that diverse books can do for people is give readers the opportunity to see themselves in stories and to understand that what they're feeling you know for example a kid who is questioning their gender identity like being able to read a book about someone who um has transitioned or is also exploring their gender identity it's like oh this is a real thing like i'm this this isn't made up like this is a real thing that happens and it's happening to me and it gives them 
a feeling of community and it also gives can mm-hmm. give them like a framework to operate from seeing how other people have done it before them and depriving them of that leaves readers and especially children alone and wondering if they're sick or something's wrong with them, wondering why no one seems to understand them. And so they're more likely to not only not explore their self-expression, not explore their identity, but they're also more likely to experience anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, you know, like it really can escalate. And I don't feel like that's being dramatic, like it really can escalate. And so that's why censoring books about certain groups of people talking about their very real lived issues is is totally an act of violence, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. agree more. And it is it's really tragic that there's such an entitlement among uh, particularly Christian straight white men who are like anything that ha- any piece of media that has anything other than straight white people in it is trying to be woke and preach to me. It's like, no, we're just trying to represent a broader group because you've been represented in 90 something percent of all books we've already written. Chill the fuck out. Yeah. But yeah, they'd, ra- they'd rather get up, get uh, get their hackles up and throw a hissy fit and their inability to simply walk past something that they don't feel is for them is mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, nobody's really pushing you to, to, to go see that movie or to read this book. (laughs) Don't read it. (laughs) I have a coworker who, uh, I've been trying to radicalize little by little and they've got, they started to get some of the anti-capitalist stuff through their head and that's great. But they're still a bigoted piece of shit. Mm. And, uh, it, it especially shows whenever they talk about, like they, they they keep talking about how much they hate all this MCU stuff that's coming out because of woke culture, and I'm like, I don't watch the MCU stuff. It's garbage programming, anyways. Nowadays, I mean, it was kind of good for a while there, even if it was a bit of military propaganda. But now the the new stuff just isn't that good of media. So don't watch it if it's going to just make you mad. It's like, well, I like interacting with stuff that makes me mad, and I'm like, well, then <laughs> why? They're saving you, brother. Yeah, yeah. Why? I don't get that at all. <laughs> If something makes me mad, I'd simply rather not. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's It does sometimes feel like these people are seeking stuff to get mad about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're going yeah. out of their way for it. And, it's like, uh, get a different hobby. Not to not to give them too much credit, but I think that, uh, I it, you know, stuff sucks right now, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> rent's high. You can't fucking get a car loan. You know, they cost $70,000 now. Uh, you know, you can't really get as much with your, you know, you can't get as much from the grocery store as you used to on the same amount of money. Uh, nobody's getting raises. But that kind of ambient discomfort with the way things are, that kind of recognition bodily that things aren't so great, has to kind of be rationalized by some people into a way that they can kind of like culturally they've been accustomed to respond to. And so these people are seeking things to hate, to explain why everything kind of sucks now, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give them too much credit because obviously they haven't examined that. They just think, oh, because now there's a non-binary character, I can't, everything's bad because of that, as opposed to the fact that, you know, their boss hasn't given them a raise or their landlord is going to evict them. There's no real contemplation of why the world is worse. That's right. Cucker Tarlson is back, everyone. Those libs at faux news thought they could cancel me, 
but I'm bigger than ever with my new podcast, Cuck Talk. Now today, I'm covering a very important issue. The need to ban the anti-Christian propaganda book, Good Night Moon. I'm joined by two guests to debate this issue, and I'll act as an impartial moderator. First, I have the highly prestigious runner of the blog, God Hates Gays, Brett Carl. Thanks for having me on, Cucker. Can't wait to educate people on how dangerous this book is. And over here, we have some hippie lady who probably kills babies. <sighs> My name's Dr. Jenny Steiner, and I already think I've made a terrible mistake by coming on this show. Ha! Huh. You can tell that I've already got you outwitted before this start, huh? Not surprising. I don't think women should be allowed to be doctors anyway. I don't want your dainty fingers cutting people up. I'm a doctor of literary history, but I can tell those words are lost on you. Honestly, I just hope my words can reach a few of the people listening. All right, enough of the pleasantries. Brett, why is this book an abomination? Well, Cuck. Well, Cucker, first off, the main character is a rabbit, and rabbits can't actually talk. That's gonna confuse the little kids reading this. Only if they're as dumb as you. Ah, let him finish and please stay civil. Right. So besides that, the real problem is that this rabbit is saying goodnight to a bunch of stuff that can't hear him, like the moon. I'm sure you see the problem. I'm with you, Brett, but let's be blunt for our listeners. This whole book, the bunny doesn't say goodnight to the one person he should be saying it to. The Christian God. It's sending the message that kids should have less respect for God than they should have for an alarm clock. This book undermines Christian values in every page and shouldn't be allowed. It's a danger to the youngest generation and to the decency in this <coughs> great country. Ah, great points there, Mr. Carl. Now, Jenny, you can try to refute him if you want, but I'm pretty sure Brett already has this locked up. Well, to be frank, that argument was banal. The book isn't meant to be a Christian text, and not every book should be one. If anything, Christian culture has become dangerous ever since those practicing it have decided to only take the most hateful messages from it. You take that back, you heathen! Yeah, you can't talk to Brett or me like that! Wait, when I interrupt, you side with him, and when he interrupts, you side with him? This doesn't seem like a very fair debate. Oh, maybe you just suck at debating. <sighs> Whatever. All I'm saying is that this book actually teaches empathy for all things that share this universe with us, and there's a reason it stood the test of time. It's an important piece of literature that should be welcomed in every household. That's bullshit. If a book doesn't respect Jesus and God, it has no place in America. Ooh, well, it's tough to argue with bombshell comments like that. I think this debate is over. Heck, if I had the power to do so, I would ban Goodnight Moon today. Parents, make sure you keep this book out of your household. Wow, you're both the fucking worst. I should have seen this coming, but I'm still mad. Fuck you. Fuck you. I'm out of here. Ooh, talk about a sore loser. Live snowflakes are always like that. Anyway, next up... Should we make the doctrine of fascism mandatory reading in schools? I personally think yes. <laughs> I 
think it really comes down to like a fear. Like if the problem is the system, that's it's it feels insurmountable. But if the problem is a very small group of marginalized people, we can squash that. And oh, yeah. I, it, I think it comes down to fear even with censorship in the first place. It's like a fear that like my story won't be the dominant story anymore. A fear that my child will be different for me and I won't understand them. Like it, it, it just seems so full of fear to me in a way that is I feel is kind of transparent. It's like you guys aren't being slick about this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, scared ass white boys definitely are the culprit, but your way of phrasing it was incredibly poignant. <laughs> I especially like your point about the whole uh, my child won't be like me thing. That's I'm sure that runs through almost every con- Christian conservative's head. Oh, God, what if my kid is gay and I have to send him to electroshock therapy? I mean, it starts real young. Like, literally, I've always said that the reason that most penis owners get circumcised in our society is because their dads are circumcised and it's like my kid's Mm -hmm. dick needs to look like mine and i think it just escalates from there they done mutilated me for no reason i didn't get invited (laughs) into some like community for getting my dick chopped off come on yeah and it's like obvious i don't you know obviously people (laughs) you can choose to circumcise or not circumcise your kid i don't really give a shit but if the only reason you're doing it is because that's what your dick looks like that's weird dude it's really weird (laughs) And this conversation would not be welcome in any school in Iowa as of today. Yeah, exactly. Excellent segue. <laughs> oh, thank you. I try. Um, yeah, no. Uh, we, this isn't. This could be a news blast item, but since it's so relevant to the conversation, we're going to talk about it here. Uh, as of today, July first, any kind of sex sex act or sex stuff in a book is banned from uh, any school in Iowa, the entire state. <sighs> yeah. Love that. That sounds cool clearly and good. That's, clearly that's how we keep our kids from becoming transgender is they're not allowed to learn about. It's just make them uh, so in the dark that, you know, they get knocked some girl up at 14. But at least that's more babies for the workforce, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> hey, these are the same states. I mean, it's Iowa. It's not Arkansas. But the ones that are making it like legal for toddlers to work in meatpacking plants. Oh, but my God. Not actual toddlers. 12 year old that feels like a toddler to me (laughs) it does yeah (laughs) but like uh these same the the same kind of politics that are kind of advancing this kind of uh oh we're banning any book that has any mention of uh sex at all is the same thing that's like why are you sexualizing children why are you teaching kids as young as six seven about you know uh, age appropriate sex ed and it's like so that they firstly, like you said, can see the world as it is and see a place for themselves in it if, say, they are questioning their uh, gender identity or in a lot of these places, maybe they can know the words to say if they themselves are getting abused. So like these same the same politics that are trying to censor all of these things as a kind of blockage for ideas is also keeping a group of people young people in this instance very vulnerable and you know we've seen especially i mean i grew up in a catholic uh space i know all about all of the horrible uh abuses that go along with these kind of these these politics of keeping people uninformed about sex uninformed about you know what the, the kind of multitudes of gender identity that you can have that you can see in real life. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really upsetting because the public school system, in theory, like in an ideal world, should be like a great equalizer. Like, you know, you cannot possibly regulate the way that children are educated in the home. But in theory, when they get to the public school system, it becomes more or less equitable. Obviously, that is super not happening at all. You know, I went to public school in one of the richest counties in the country, and my best friend currently teaches here in the Richmond City Public Schools, and we are not getting the same educations. But if, like you mentioned, you know, giving kids the language to talk about things like like really important things like their identity, but also like if they're being abused, like they talk about how, and by they, I mean the community of parents who are on the internet and I get targeted videos all the time, yeah. but you're supposed to teach your kids like what their body parts are actually called so that they can talk about, talk about them. If, if something's happening to them, they can talk about what is happening to them using like scientific language. But if they don't get that in the home, like they really should be able to get that in the school. And it's just really upsetting to like be taking this whole crucially important segment of the educational spectrum that affects literally all of us, like how our bodies work naturally. Like our bodies are literally evolutionarily like designed for sex. That's like the whole point mm -hmm. yeah. of existing as an animal <laughs> is like to have sex and like to take that whole sphere of knowledge away from children is fucking mind boggling to me. Like why on earth deprive them of the opportunity to fully understand like not only themselves, but like humanity as a whole. Yeah. And that, transitions perfectly into the next little point we have about the idea of parents' rights, These, the, this entitlement that parents have that their kid should only be raised with the knowledge they want their kid to have and not an actual decent base of knowledge from all walks of life. It's really upsetting because, like, to some extent, like, parents should be able to make choices for their children. That's, like, the whole point of being a parent is that, like, you get to make certain choices. But, like, when it comes to education. I just, I, it, everyone should have the same base of knowledge. Yeah. Or else you're setting your children up for at, at best a huge intellectual disadvantage. And at worst, the inability to talk about something horrific that's happening to them or something yeah. that is like really confusing their minds. Like they, no part of this is like protecting children. No part of this is in the best interest of the children. It is again in the best interest of the parents who are afraid that they're going to have to talk about these issues that they were raised to not be comfortable talking about, probably because of religion. I too was raised in a Catholic household and it's taken my whole family, my entire life of 30 years to become okay with talking about certain things. And that's mostly just due to me blurting things against, <laughs> against <laughs> all, you know, all of our family culture, like you just have to keep exposing them to you saying things that they're not ready right. for. And eventually 30 <laughs> years later, they'll just get used to it. Yeah. Eventually oh, they'll stop yelling at you to stop saying things. <laughs> that's just how it works in any uh, structure of the culture. The way to change hearts and minds is literally just to keep pounding it into the heads of those who aren't listening, Yeah, which is why books are such a great resource because they're forever. They're eternal. You can keep, you have so many different ways, so many different narratives with how to, you know, pound these messages in. Yeah, absolutely. And you get to learn the same kinds of things over and over again from different perspectives too. So it's not like you just learn once. It's you keep learning these same important messages over and over by reading all different kinds of books throughout your life. Yeah, it's uh, it's my new podcast slogan: A B C. Always be learning. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
<laughs> oh my god! But yeah, uh, in that last it is sad. Episode, in the last episode, Kyle groaned so hard at that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be bringing uh, it up a lot, Kyle. You're going to have to get used to it. I think that's if you ever have a T-shirt, I think that like A, B, and then like a little scratch out C with the letters next to it is going to have to. I mean, I don't think I don't know if we're ever going to do T-shirts, but <laughs> um, I kind of want that for me now. <laughs> anyways, uh, it is sad how our culture actively tries to fight against the broadening of knowledge um, because, again, like you said, of fear. But that's that's the society we currently live in. All we can do is keep trying to change it, keep writing more books that, that you know, broaden horizons and hope. And maybe authors will be able, authors are clever people. I think they'll figure out ways to get around all these book bans. It's like, oh, I didn't do anything that was against the state laws. And it's, but this book still covers all of the uh, ideas that you're afraid of, you know. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, hopefully uh, our authors can keep broadening those horizons. Does anyone else have any uh, last minute points they want to make regarding specifically literature? Not I. I think we've had a wonderfully broad conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say anybody who's interested in specifically looking into kind of the origins of the um, parents' rights like movement and kind of a good overview. Uh, the podcast Citations Needed did a very good uh, free episode a couple of weeks back. They're a great resource anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, it might not be a couple of weeks back by the time this comes out. It'll probably be like a month and a half. A month but... and some. Some, <laughs> some number yeah. of weeks. Uh, yeah, you'll, I mean, you'll be able to find it recently. I'm sure they've, they've got a description in there that makes it pretty clear it's about parents' rights. With that, then, I guess we're ready to move on to our news blast. To the news. do 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 Well, let's start with the big one. The most, um, as of yesterday for us, but probably like a few weeks ago by the time that you hear this, the Supreme Court did a whole bunch of shit, and it was all bad. They always do this right at the end of their uh, sessions, where they just dump a whole mess of, you know, they, we talk about, you know, whether or not, I mean, people talk about whether or not the, uh, court has any legitimacy and is or is not uh politicized uh it seems very obvious that they are um like all of these decisions were made a while ago and they just hold on to them until the very end of the session and then they dump them all in a heap and you know you you can pick out any one of them you can pick out the one where they said no more uh uh what is it no more affirmative action in higher education. Cool. Um, love it. Love that. You can go ahead and say, oh, well, because they brought these this this l- legitimately fake case made up with all of the facts were patently false and thrown away could be could have been thrown away, but they made it completely uh legal now to discriminate against LGBTQ people. If you're a business owner and then, of course, you know, 45 million people now do not get any uh, student loan debt relief. I mean, this always seems to happen whenever two thirds of our Supreme Court is openly fascist. Yep. I had a Facebook memory pop up yesterday um, from one year ago and it said, hey, sorry if I seem tired. They did like 50 years worth of bad stuff in a week. And I'm also dealing with a lot of targeted Barbie movie content. And I was like, wow, one year later, I feel the exact same. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it hasn't changed. Hasn't changed at all. <laughs> oh my gosh. They were doing I Barbie mean, content a year ago? My god. Yeah, they started yeah, early. I, mean, I would say that we are definitely in a regression period here uh 
in the States. And it's unfortunate because, you know, for a while it seemed like we were making at least good headway on the social issues, even yeah. if capitalism was still winning. Um, you know, we were at least like, okay, well, let's be a little more inclusive. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. no, that inclusivity. We get we scared too much. I mean, like I said, I really do think that like uh, part of it was just Trump getting elected was a damn wall breaking. Yeah. Was, those people were all right there behind the surface. It could have been any it could have been any fascist piece of scum. It just happened to be Donald Trump. Because wasn't gay marriage legalized in 2015? Uh, 2013. 2013. Yeah, we yeah. had like a very and that felt like such a wonderful win. And we mm-hmm. got to feel that so briefly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's and unfortunately, because while the well, I will, I will say that the Republicans are more actively evil. It'd be nice if the Democrats would codify some of this shit so that the Republicans couldn't instantly undermine it the moment they had a glimmer of power. Yeah, right. The uh, the thing that really gets me is that the same kind of vulnerabilities that are facing things like they're gutting the Voting Rights Act, they're gutting the uh, well, I guess the gutting the Voting Rights Act is different, but Oberfell is a the thing that ultimately made it legal state all you know countrywide to to get married if you're you know marrying somebody of the same sex uh that is just a legal precedent set by a a rule a court ruling and can easily be challenged by this now massively conservative dominated court so it's like you're 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 faced against nine kings who just kind of get to choose whether or not we ever get good things ever again yeah. Yeah. The way you phrase that is very spot on. That is how it feels. It's like every every move they make puts places us ever deeper in this like nightmare dystopia. And I mean, it doesn't look like it's showing any signs of slowing because unfortunately, uh, Supreme Court justices get to stay in power as long as they basically want to or until they fucking kick it. Wild. And, uh, A wild choice and to make for people insane. who affect so many people so deeply. <laughs> Yep, and uh, and of course, uh, the the pundits don't agree with me on this, but I'm still pretty convinced that Donald Trump will be our 2024 president, and it'll just get worse from there. <sighs> yeah, who knows what? The... I, ca- I kind of don't have anything to say because it's just so upsetting. Right. <laughs> That's it's a terrifying possibility. I would again, m- most of the media pundits say Biden is going to win again in 24, but I'm I'm not convinced. Yeah, I think that it's gonna it's gonna get just get or, uh, more skewed. We've got what is this? Uh, 16 more months, and in those 16 months, 12 of them, so they got the, specifically on the, the court ruled that, you know, it's unconstitutional to give people 10000 up to $20,000 if they had a Pell Grant in student debt relief. Obviously, we all know the hypocrisy of, like, PPP loans, we all know the 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 silliness that you know they they could have done this in a much quicker way and not allowed the kind of legal challenges that were brought up uh but the plan b seems to be going through a a different act the 1965 uh higher education act which again could just be a stroke of the pen kind of write it off thing but they're doing a 12 month kind of long term program and at the end of that i don't know what it's going to look like they're still apparently deciding what they're going to do through the higher ed uh that Secretary Cardona, the Department of Education, they still don't know exactly what they're going to do. But over those 12 months, people are going to be paying out the wazoo these these uh, student loans. The interest is going to be tacked back on from the last three years. And the, uh, you know, the, they had have a so-called on-ramp payment plan, which basically just means that you can miss your payments 
they'll still accrue, they'll still accrue interest, but they won't send that data to credit reporting agencies. So you can keep a 780 credit score, but, you know, be ever increasing in debt. I don't know what that's going to mean in 16 months. I mean, we see from week to week, things feel different in, you know, worse in different ways for either party and their uh, chances. And I don't want to prognosticate, but I don't feel too terribly confident that people are going to be very excited about this party if they're still paying their student loans, if they're getting crushed like they are. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe the actual fear of something horrible and awful coming back like Trump or whatever will keep people going and will get the kind of massive turnout that he got in 2020. But we'll we'll see. It really just feels like every election is just like the pendulum swinging back in the other direction. Like it feels like everything at this point is so reactionary and like none of it oh, is yeah. truly constructive in any meaningful way. Well, I mean, yeah, because because the pendulum swings from the center to the very far right and then back to the center. And that's as far as we allow it to yeah. go. Um, and I mean, it would help if we could organize as masses in some kind of safer space. But unfortunately, social media keeps getting corrupted by the alt-right. First, there was the collapse of Twitter. And of course, just recently, we have the new uh, institution of the modern day Reddit, which is our next little news story. So for those of you who don't know, I'm going to kind of like do the Cliff Notes version of this. Reddit CEO basically said, we can make more money if we privatize elements of our API and make third-party apps that make it easier for differently-abled people to use them uh, if we make them pay a subscription fee to use our API of millions of dollars a month. And most of these third-party apps are volunteer-made and don't have that kind of money. So suddenly Reddit is inaccessible to a lot of differently-abled people. And in that same short span, the CEO went on to start praising the policies of Elon Musk and changing the metrics on Reddit's, certain subreddits, especially the conservative ones. So that's that would uh, that's uh, that's uh, d- delightful. Yeah, because yeah. Reddit was one of the few social medias that wasn't completely corrupted. For I, it's very upsetting. I mean, any any time access is limited instead of expanded, it's like, oh, okay. So we're not mm. <laughs> we're not doing like nothing good is systematically happening. Like it's <laughs> people can just still be shitty all the time. Like no one is meaningfully seeking long-term accessibility options like it's just it's so depressing yeah, yeah there's no really using the internet these days anyway like reddit was one of the ones where you could still like if i wanted to find a it's it was reddit and youtube if i ever wanted to actually find a an answer to like a, a an actual question um now it's all just ads and it, you yeah, know, their ad, their ad API is going to end space up has gone massively thing. up. Mm-hmm. Although, and this is the one, this is the one glimmer of hope. Reddit, the user base, is fighting back against Reddit, the service. Ever since these changes, a lot of subreddits have started listing their subreddits as pornographic, so that they can't have ads on them. Have started just posting pictures nice. of John Oliver and nothing else, <laughs> like regardless of the content. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's it's fun to see the user base rise up in little ways, and Reddit stock is plummeting. But I'm sure they're. Because of how, of how capitalism works, eventually that will die down and the CEO will still make his massive golden parachute money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess I was hoping for a, a less depressing ending to that one, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just shitty. It's just depressing. <laughs> Speaking of depressing, I guess uh, we can put this off forever. We need to talk about a major tragedy at sea. Of course, I'm talking about the couple hundred migrant workers who died in the uh, super yacht sinking uh, while they were being transited to their new jobs in Spain. 
and then the several dozen more who died off the coast of Spain in range of the Coast Guard to go save them. That is horrifying. You know, we we ragged on the the Nordic models. Obviously, this is the other side of the of the continent. This is this is in the Mediterranean. But you see a lot of um in one instance. Um, I don't know if this is the exact same one that you were mentioning, Phil, but the uh. There was a, a group of 750 migrants who I believe were coming from Libya and were on their way into Greek waters and then were ending up being tugged by the Greek Coast Guard. And the Greek Coast Guard uh, were tugging them specifically towards Italian waters in order to basically dump the, the, the burden, I guess, as they would think of it, of, of these migrants onto Italy, essentially just throwing away these people because they they the racism in Europe especially towards these african migrants is is, is terrifyingly uh it, it's it's bad and while they were tugging this boat out towards the italian uh waters basically it would seem that i don't know if it was purposeful but one of the survivors of that group uh suggested that the greek coast guard were cutting left and right left and right really hard essentially causing the t boat that was being tugged to rock until it capsized leaving 750 people out in open water and while this happened they or after this happened the coast guard waited three hours to go out and help these people so as they were trying to illegally whatever whatever laws actually can apply to these kinds of actions uh drag these people into another nation's waters so that they didn't have to accept them as refugees uh they seemingly purposefully capsized their boat and led to the deaths of several scores and maybe hundreds of people because they haven't found everyone they didn't try very hard yeah it's really sad what the that fuck? kind of stuff happens i mean i know that when i mentioned a tragedy at sea the first <laughs> thing that y'all were thinking probably was of a different news story that's gotten quite a bit more coverage than the deaths of hundreds of people which is the deaths of five rich people and um we just we may as well go ahead and touch even though everyone else talk, talked about the story we may as well go and touch on it so first off the unnecessary loss of any human life should be regarded with a uh, somberness we should never be celebrating it and uh, if you can't say something nice you really shouldn't say anything at all so we're going to go ahead and move on to our next news story. Um, we always like to end on some good news here, which is uh, something, you know, it's a shitty world out there. But we always like to try to prioritize the, the stories of people doing the right thing and good things happening. So uh, we're going to talk strikes, which is usually our good news section. The uh, writer strike is still going strong. That's cool. And then we have uh, the Teamsters and have uh, basically confirmed that UPS will be striking very, very, very soon. So that's awesome. And then we have one other strike to cover after that. But yeah, thoughts on the UPS strikes? It's going to make mail weird. Yeah, the the thing that always gets me is that they always try to uh, force this sort of fake... Uh, it In their reporting, generally, you will get from places that, like the New York Times or your local news, uh, things about how it's you, the consumer, that the, these these striking workers are slighting by, by taking this last-ditch effort to make the their their employers bargain and negotiate in good faith and i think it's just really important never to actually believe that that you are much just generally you're much more like the ups driver than you are 
the person running UPS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, important for us to keep that in mind. And uh, unfortunately, they will sell they will sell that narrative of this is hurting you to a lot of, uh, quite frankly, dumb consumers. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that's that hopefully enough people will see it as a good thing. Or at the very least, even if most people don't see it as a good thing, the results will speak for themselves if the UPS people actually get their even a fraction of their demands met, which is usually the best you can hope for in these things. Yeah, I think that if people are willing, just become slightly more willing to inconvenience themselves in the slightest to make the world a better place, I I think we'll all be better off. I think about this all the time um, in the book world. People love to order books from Amazon, which is like, fine, order books however you can. But like if you order from the independently owned bookshop.org, instead of getting your book in two days, it'll take like 10 days. And like, do you think you could wait 10 days for this book? You're probably not going to read for six months anyway. A lot of people don't want (laughs) to, but it's like it's in the obviously such a totally different subject. But it's the same basic principle of like be willing to inconvenience yourself ever so slightly for the greater good. Yeah, uh, it actually f- folds in perfectly because, I mean, Amazon and UPS kind of work hand in hand. And uh, quite frankly, if yeah. people could stop relying on both of those things as necessities for their day to day, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. The other uh, the other strike, which I think the the one that I th- want to celebrate the most as of recording, it's July 1st. So that means we don't care about queer people anymore. We're done. Worrying <laughs> about them. Uh, no, seriously, though. Um, Back in June, Starbucks, the, I don't know if you've heard the small little company called Starbucks, they uh, fell flat out told their employees, hey, the conservatives don't like it when you put up your little rainbow flag decorations, so you're not allowed to have them in any of the stores. And 150 different Starbuckses struck, struck all at once. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it's actually, I, I got to say, one of the, you know, it sucks that obviously this is a catalyst again to pull the Starbucks union organizing back into our uh, our orbit because obviously you'd prefer even if it is just even if it is just kind of like crass commercialization of people's identity you'd prefer that they're like oh yeah because people are doing this because people are accepting that there are lgbtq people in the world we can have you know rainbow flags pride flags pride uh paraphernalia in our stores even if it is, you know, maybe cynical on their part. But the fact that it's kind of like backlashed and then you see, thankfully, so many people like still stand up for not just, you know, their, you know, obviously we want them to get paid. We want them to get the hours that they need, but to stand up also for groups of people that they may also be a part of. It's a fantastic reason to see more of this at the Starbucks Union Drive. Yeah. Yeah, just any, any, uh, even if it is with cynicism, I will take any LGBTQ plus community support. You know, like, I, I get that most of these corporations get throw their rainbow logos out. The, like I said, July 1st, they're done with them. But it's, I mean, we, if, if when, the, when the corporations are flat out saying no, even during the month of June, fuck you, then we know we're really facing a, an uphill battle and it's good to see people fighting back against that rather than just leaning over and accepting it. Yeah. Because doing be, you know, being an ally, putting up your flags or whatever performatively is like kind of a first step to normalizing it mm-hmm. and having more people doing it really authentically. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we, uh, I, as far as I know, those strikes that those Starbucks strikes are still going on, even though pride month is over. So let's hope that those stores, I mean, I think they probably found scabs to work them for now, but let's hope that those stores, uh, 
end up facing some kind of uh, backlash in the market, quote unquote, marketplace of ideas for their hateful thoughts and ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is uh, all the news we had to cover this month. I mean, I'm sure more stuff will happen by before we release this, but you'll have to wait till next month for that. Uh, so we are going to move on to a new segment that is uh, something we'll only have when we have a guest who's an expert in a field on something we just uh, it's not really leftism, but, you know, it's nice to have some variety in your podcast. So uh, we are going to do kind of an ask an expert se- uh, section here while we've got a professional publisher and editor on with us to uh, get some insights into the literary world from just an open, non-leftist, whatever she wants to say perspective. And we have three, uh, we're going to do uh, three little questions here, and we hope to have a few other guests on throughout the season who, uh, we can, bro- who can help us broaden our perspectives on new topics, because there's nothing wrong with being informed. So I really, uh, <laughs> one of the first questions I think is like, do you have any tips, like maybe three of them, for aspiring writers, people who want to actually get out there and do these sorts of things? I know we talked a little bit about like, you know, going out to libraries, having that kind of community building. But uh, do you have any tips? Yes. I have literally so many tips for aspiring writers. The first one, the big one is like, write. (laughs) I know that sounds like really obvious, but so many people have great ideas for books, but like nobody cares about an idea for a book. If you want to be a writer, you have to like literally write it down. And like thinking about writing is not writing world building recreationally is like not writing reading what you already wrote being really critical of yourself is not writing like the heart the literal hardest part of writing is just getting your story down on paper at all costs and it's so 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 important um like i'm dra- i'm drafting a novel right now and you know the average novel it starts at, you know, like 70 K words, more or less. Um, and I've been drafting this novel and my first draft is 35 K words. And it's like, I can build from that. But if I had never, if I'd been worried about its length while I was writing it, I would never have gotten the story down in a straight line. You, you just literally have to get it on paper. That's, uh... Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that I do. Um, it's not the same, obviously, but uh, whenever I'm editing, I like to get through the full story. You just have to push through that full story. Don't get held up on those early parts or even those later parts. Don't worry so much about, like you said, the length of the book. Get that story. Get the ideas down on paper in front of you, and then you can tinker with it. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, it's the same thing that paralyzes me sometimes with the skits I write for this show. Like, I'll be just thinking, hmm. I what do I I want to make sure I include this and this and this and that I'm never actually like sitting down and punching out the script. I'm too busy thinking about all the things I want to be in it. Yeah, it's so much easier to fix something than it is to stress over writing it perfect the first time. A next big tip that I have is read. Gotta read. You literally cannot be a writer if you don't read. And you should read in the genre, the subject matter that you're trying to write in, especially more contemporary books so that you can get a bit of an understanding of the industry of that genre. You have to read constantly if you want to write. Makes sense. I need to do more reading. (laughs) It's great. It'll make you more empathetic. It's like TV, but a little easier on your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm. I'm all audio. I don't sit down and look at texts like unless it's news anymore, it seems like, which is all very depressing. Then it's so much better on your eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we call that eye reading versus ear reading. Well, if ear reading counts, then I just need to get more audio books and less podcasts. It counts. Podcasts are great 
podcasts and audiobooks live in the kind of the same part of my brain. Well, then cool. I'll count it. Yeah. In that case, I listen to about 40 hours of and, books a And week. there's even, <laughs> I mean, there's fiction audio dramas in the podcast land. So like you can really, you don't need to read with your eyes if that isn't your preference or if you're not able to. Ear reading and ear listening to stories is amazing and wonderful. My last big tip for writers is don't be afraid to write about people who are different from you, but include people who are in who identify as your character. You know, I'm saying this stupid, like, don't be afraid to write diversely. But if you have a character that's from like a different gender orientation or a different race or different sexual orientation from you, work with people, editors who are from those groups to better understand your own story. So it's like you can't you can't not represent marginalized groups, but you also can't do it by yourself. Yeah, definitely. That tip goes out to straight white people more than anyone else. Since we as we've talked about multiple times in this episode, we have 90 something percent of the culture, historical written stuff uh, is about us already. So it is important for us to broaden those horizons. Yeah. But yeah, you can't just broaden your horizons by sitting. No amount of sitting and researching on your own is going to get there. Yeah. You actually have to meet people. Yeah. Yeah. And like never assume that, you know, anything like I have a ton of trans non-binary friends and my the main character of the novel I'm working on right now is non-binary. And like the fact that I have a lot of non-binary friends like does not mean that I know exactly how to represent one on paper. It's still my responsibility to go get some non-binary book editors to take a look and let me know if I'm missing anything or or getting anything wrong. I'm going to jump the gun on a plug here. Listeners, if any of you are aspiring writers who need to broaden your horizons and talk to a diversified group who's very open to questions, you can subscribe to the Deus Ex Media Patreon for (gasps) only $1 a month and you can talk to a whole group of really cool, diverse people there. Yeah! Oh, thank you so much. It just seemed relevant. <laughs> and so like, uh, I guess so that we've gotten these tips and of course a plug for anybody who was trying to write, trying to expand their horizons and bring in other characters and kind of appreciate them. What would you say are books that have recently published? Would you recommend any of them? Yeah, for sure. Uh, for starters, I always recommend YA young adult books. I think because like their ostensible target audience is like teenagers, they have this sort of liberty to explore a broader range of ideas without the same level of policing, both like politically Mm -hmm. and like in terms of literature. YA is really doing so much work right now. And it's not for babies. It's like, it's not like reading a kid's book. A lot Goodbye, of YA is really mature, really palatable to an adult readership. And it's, I've, I find it much easier to read diversely in YA than in books for other age groups. I recommend seeking out diverse memoirs and listening to the audiobooks of those because almost every memoir, the audiobook is read by the author. I recently read Burning Butch by R.B. Mertz, which is the memoir of a super queer, super Catholic person kind of trying to figure it out. I've listened to, I think Jonathan Van Ness has two memoirs out now. Um, and the audiobooks are wonderful. There's Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. Like, I, I really definitely recommend seeking out other people's real stories and listening to those um, just to kind of get a bit of a different perspective on a life that 
you haven't lived. Um, I'm just kind of scrolling through my uh, story graph account here. I also really recommend You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People by Audrey Gordon. Um, she's one of the co-hosts of Maintenance Phase Podcast, which is kind of in a similar vein about health my- myths. Um, I think that fat people are a marginalized group that are uniquely like looked down upon sort of universally and like treated, I think, Differently from other marginalized groups. Um, So I think that learning more from an expert about weight and about health misconceptions, especially as it relates to fatness, is really important for everyone. I actually downloaded downloaded that one uh, after you plugged it. Uh, in an episode of your podcast. Yes, and the audiobook is read by the author, which I love. I read a ton of books, so if anyone wants like more specific book recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me because I, I'm happy to dish out personalized recommendations. And we will have your link tree uh, in the show notes for sure. Thank you. And just to close this out, uh, do you, when you're reading, is there anything you specifically absolutely do not want to find? I mean, I, we've spoken a little bit about you know if somebody don't assume that you know necessarily everybody's experience go get that kind of uh feedback but do you see any tropes that you just would like writers to quit yeah this one the one that bothers me the most i have definitely been seeing less and less but it is still everywhere and i beg authors to stop reading stop writing about characters who are not like other girls (laughs) I cannot stand reading about a character who is better than her friends, who thinks she's better than her friends, a character who the the heartthrob singles out for reasons no one else can pick up on. They do not seem to have any chemistry. Like I was kind of talking about at the beginning of the episode, like the one girl who can see that this system isn't working and everyone around her is stupid. Write about women in community. Write about sisterhood. Write about women uplifting other women because that is what we're doing today. That we are not we are not pitted against each other. We are working together. Wait, so you're saying that perfect Mary Sue types aren't interesting and dynamic characters? <laughs> I too have read Twilight and I think no. <laughs> well, that was uh, incredibly informative and it's uh, always good to get new perspectives and expert opinions on stuff. We really appreciate uh, your insights on that. And we really appreciate your time in general. I think that's about going to bring us to a close. So uh, thank you again so much for coming on with us, Christina. We really, uh, we really appreciate your uh, the insights you added to this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I love the show, and it's been really good to be able to talk to you guys about stuff. And honestly, I was worried that I wasn't gonna have enough uh, enough expertise in the subject matter, but y'all make me feel smarter. So, nah, you're plenty smart on your own. We just know how to direct put directions on topics about leftism and i appreciate it well that's that's what we do on this show uh yeah it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you this was a delight and uh we would like you to now go ahead and plug anything you would like to yes Definitely check out. I have a small independent publishing company that is committed to uplifting marginalized voices. We publish mostly science fiction and fantasy. Um, Wildling Press. We're at Wildling Press on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, not Twitter anymore. Um, We also have a podcast called How Do I Book, which is sort of like a beginner level, like writing and book culture exploration podcast. And I myself am actually publishing my first book in January. It's called Indie Book Publishing from Start to Finish. And it's sort of like a 
the broadest of overviews of the indie book publishing process. And so if you follow Wildling on social media, you'll be able to see when that's available for pre-order. And please also check out all of the Deus Ex Media Network podcasts. A lot of them are like fandom podcasts. We got a Percy Jackson podcast. We got a Steven Universe podcast. We also have some, um, we have like a movie podcast. And then we also have like sort of like a digital interest, like it's ostensibly about adulting, but it's really about people's uh, careers and passions. And I find it to be extremely interesting. So you can find all of those um, at deusxmedia.org. And I can't help but notice you refrain from plugging a certain podcast that you host. I'm going to go ahead and plug it for you. So we all know that Harry Potter is canceled. Yes, it sucks. But also some of us still remember liking the books and want to go back to some kind of Harry Potter media. Well, if you want to do that without also supporting transphobia, you couldn't do better than Restricted Section. It's a Harry Potter slander, Harry Potter book club podcast, and it's Really, I mean, maybe skip the first season. The uh, skip, skip, like, don't go go back to uh, Sorcerer's Stone after you've gotten acquainted it was with the host. We you know, knew. <laughs> but yeah, it's it really is an excellent. Uh, it really is an excellent podcast for people who don't like that they still kind of like Harry Potter, and so I would I would personally recommend it. Um, and if you want a jumping in point, they're about to start Half Blood. Actually, by the time this comes out, they'll have started Half Blood Prince. And if you listen to the uh, pregame episode for that book, you might hear a skit written by your favorite satirical dysfunctional asshole. Oh, my God. It is so good. It's at the end of the episode. Uh, like, so definitely stick through the credits or whatever. It's so good. And thank you so much for all your kind words about my podcast. I love it quite a bit for the community that it's created for me. And, you know, we're out here doing everything we can to sort of like counteract the harm done by the author of the series. Um, all of our net I mean, proceeds. I mean, all your Patreon donations. Yeah. Yep. All of our net proceeds from the Patreon we donate to uh, nonprofits and organizations that support trans and queer youth right now. We're donating our net proceeds to Camp Lilac, which is literally like a camp safe haven for uh, gender questioning kids to just be themselves. So um, we're really doing the best we can with what we got. And with that, we're going to go ahead and uh, send you all off with our classic send off and feel free to join us on this, uh, Tina. We always like to make sure that all of our listeners know that the best thing you can bring out into the world is love and solidarity. Love and solidarity. Y'all. Love and solidarity. It can be told in few enough words. We are not certain of his intentions even yet. They talk, so I am told.